Welcome back to the Rebel Alliance Media Podcast. In the studio today, we have author, theologian, and all-around good guy, Mike Wilkins. Welcome back, Mike. Thank you, Chris. Wonderful. I'm also joined by my co-host, Nate. Um, so today, guys, we have a couple good questions. We want to start off. If you could sit under the teaching of one Puritan for one year, who would it be? Let that percolate for a minute. Yeah, it's a great, great question. Why don't you lead, lead the way? But uh, just for our, our listeners here, so what, how are we defining Puritan? Are we doing it by, by a year? Do we want to go with just reformers? How do we want to approach the question here? Just anybody in the 16th, 17th century is good to go? I, I say that's exactly fair. Anybody right. who died pre-1750. Okay. Just pick that date out of my... <laughs> Sounds good. All right. <laughs> Um, if I could sit under the preaching of one Puritan for a year, I'd probably have to go with, I, I think I'd have to go with Jonathan Edwards. Um, kind of the, we'll call him the last Puritan, uh, great awakening. Uh, he, from what I understand, Jonathan Edwards just stood and kind of read his lecture notes, but, uh, the, the, the passion and the fire in, in those, uh, sermons and, uh, and some of the traditions or the, the stories you hear about when he's preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, and you got people running up, trying to interrupt him in the middle of the sermon so that he can pray, uh, you know, some sort of salvation prayer with them, uh, because they were so fearful of dying in the moment and being swallowed up by hell. I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to experience a little bit of that hellfire and brimstone. So I'm going to go with Jonathan Edwards. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll go back a century, and my preacher for the year would be John Owen uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that he's just a fascinating guy. He uh, was brilliant, went to Oxford University at the age of 12, which was unusually young, <laughs> and graduated at the age of 16. And his life ambition, which appeals to me, is to simply find a church and pastor that church. But he kept getting taken away from a church parish one way or the other. Uh, one way was that Oliver Cromwell, who was the Lord Protector of England, because this is just after the execution of King Charles I, asked him to be his personal chaplain as he was going into Ireland to calm down the Irishmen and uh, <laughs> Scotland in order to uh, defeat the Scots. Uh, wild adventures, uh, very controversial military campaign. And... Uh, John Owen was right there beside him. Uh, later on, John Owen was elected as the vice chancellor of Oxford University. Oxford had fallen into, into gross immorality and ill behavior, and there was hardly anybody learning anything that you <laughs> want your children to learn. Uh, and the vice chancellor was like the vice principal, the disciplinarian. He brought great discipline and godliness to Oxford in his time. But that was interesting. And so, you know, just the opportunity you'd have at the church door to say, tell me more about Oliver Cromwell would be interesting. But the more substantial reason is that his, his complete works are mammoth, 23 volumes altogether. And his treatises are very deep and very Christ-centered. But they all have amazingly down-to-earth how-tos. If he's talking about the face of Christ, and much of, of what I learned about seeing the face of Christ, metaphorically speaking, was from John Owen. He'll stop and give a six or a ten-point list of practical things you can do to get this happening in your life. So that combination of it, such an interesting guy, so doctrinally sound and uh, so practical, is uh, very appealing to me. John Owen. John All right, Chris. 
Who are you sitting under? I would actually sit under George Whitfield. Hmm. Um, the reason is I think he's right up my alley where, where, I, where I'm passionate, evangelism. And anybody who can preach 18,000 sermons in a 40-year ministry blows my mind. He used to ride 20 miles to preach to 1,000 people, and that grew into 20,000. And uh, the reason I think him is because I was going to say Jonathan Edwards, but then I remember I read a book, and it just was an offhanded comment that Jonathan Edwards, the revival at his church didn't happen until George Whitfield came, mm. and, they, and they basically got together for a moment, and then George Whitfield went on. And it sparked it, and I was like, anybody who is anointed enough to be that, that much of an evangelist, I would want to follow around and just see how he lived his life on a daily basis. So I picked him. I went a little bit different than you guys did. He's not somebody who has a lot of works now, written. What I find interesting is that for as much as we talk about beards on this program, uh, we've all picked beardless men to sit under. So I don't know what that says about our beard theory, or particularly your beard theory, Chris, but uh, we all chose powdered wig men as opposed to bearded men. Well, I think the, I think the key is that we have to be able to bring something to the conversation, right? So so, so encouraging them to, to get more manly exactly in their facial like, hair region. Like, Spurgeon was reformed before it was cool. Well, it's cool now, so we should go back and reconvert these guys. I don't know how we're going to do that, but and get them to be bearded instead of wigged. I think that's I think that's really what I'm going with. All right, fair I enough. Think wigs are very reformed though too. So we've had the really yeah, that's true. We've had the 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 really uh, Christian question: who's who's what Puritan would you sit under? So now let's go a little bit more carnal and ask if you had to fight one Puritan to the death. Who are you not wanting to fight? I'll start off with this. Richard Baxter. So <laughs> I don't know very much ton, tons about him, but I know that he was a tall man and I am not a tall man. So <laughs> he has a reach advantage on me that I just don't think I could overcome. Mostly because, well, I'm short and I'm stocky, so I wouldn't be able to get close to him. I think he could just keep me back with jabs and that will just wear me down enough and I'm not in great shape. So I'd run out of stamina <laughs> and then I think he'd just take it to me. You really, really thought about the dynamics of that fight. Well, if I had to, like, I, I, I'm not a big fighter, but if I had to fight one guy and you, and it was specific to the death, <laughs> and I was like, well, I know who I don't want to fight, so it's Richard Baxter. Mike, who do you not want to fight? I, uh, I don't want to fight somebody that I might beat because I love the Puritans. I'd rather oh, wow, get killed that, by yeah. a Puritan. <laughs> he just passed successfully. Well played. So uh, the the one I would like to fight. Um, is uh, probably John Owen, because he was there in the battlefields of Ireland and Scotland under Oliver Cromwell, and at least would have picked stuff up in terms of how <laughs> what it looks like to kill a kill a guy, and so he would be probably most skilled at it. The ones I particularly would not want to uh, fight are ones I might accidentally kill. Jonathan Edwards comes to mind, right. frail, unathletic, <laughs> six feet tall, so we match in terms of that. But I, I might accidentally hurt him in my obligation to try to kill him. Well, you, you've kind of sparked me to rethink my answer, but I, I'll go with my original answer here, and it was John Calvin. And the reason I wouldn't want to fight John Calvin to the death is because there, there are very few guys as tenacious as John Calvin. And, uh, and you said uh, Owen would be around death enough to know what killing a guy looked like. And, and we, we know the, the blood on the hands of John Calvin. And I know what being on the wrong yeah. end of, uh, of John Calvin's anger would look like. So I'm going to go with not wanting to fight John Calvin to the death. Though uh, I didn't go quite as spiritual as Mike on that one. So, <laughs> so thanks for your answers, guys. Um, as, we, uh, as we go into uh, our 
the meat of our topic today, uh, what we want to talk about is uh, just kind of looking at this question. What if everything that you think you know about the future is wrong? And I asked that question because uh, I grew up in a, in a church that uh, really put forward a lot of the, the Christian fiction that's very, very popular these days. Um, and, uh, and when I was a teenager specifically, it was the Left Behind series. And I remember as a teenager, I remember going to a youth group, I remember watching the Left Behind series, and I remember forever being scarred. In fact, I remember uh, months later coming home from school one day, and my mom ran a daycare at the time. And so I came home from school, and usually when I came home from school, the house was lively with children that weren't ours running all over the place, and there was nobody there. And uh, my mom wasn't there, the kids weren't there, and I, I remember feeling like I just got left behind. And so I phoned my dad at the church office, and he didn't pick up. And so I frantically started calling people that I knew if, if the rapture just happened, this guy would have made it because <laughs> I, I feared that I got left behind. So I start calling a bunch of people and I couldn't get in touch with anybody. And I fell on my face sobbing and repenting of every sin I'd ever committed, hoping that I could wish myself up into rapture when my mom and all the, uh, the daycare kids came in through the door and I realized that I hadn't been left behind. The rapture hadn't <laughs> happened and, uh, and all was still well in the world. But that was the environment that I grew up in. And so we, were, we grow up in a Christian environment if you grew up in a, in a church that had this sort of uh, very pessimistic view of, of history of the world, that the world is going to get worse and worse, that there's, there's uh, some political figure named the Antichrist coming, and he's going to usher in some sort of tribulation, and, and the world's going to get worse and worse. In fact, it's going to get so bad that God is going to rapture or pull his, his church off the earth and then the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket before Jesus comes back and, and rescues everything. And what if that story is, is wrong? What if that story isn't the story that the Bible's telling? And that's kind of what we want to talk about uh, a little bit today. So, um, Mike, you've been around a little bit longer than Chris and I. And uh, <laughs> so you've seen uh, not only the Left Behind, but you saw Late Great Planet Earth and you saw all of the, the telltale signs. Yeah. In fact, you were old enough to remember 1988, which was supposed to be the year that Jesus yeah. came back. Uh, yeah, tell yeah. us a little bit about your interaction with this, this largely believed story yeah. of the future. I, uh, I became a believer at the age of 17 in the very early 70s. And in those days, what was happening in terms of this topic was a book by a, a Dallas grad named Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. And it was a popular seller. Uh, all kinds of people that didn't normally buy Christian books were buying it and dazzled by the, um, by the evident horrors which await us. The book was written in a very popular way when uh, Hal Lindsey gets to the, the uh, great prostitute riding on the red dragon. The chapter of the book is called Scarlet O Harlot. So there was sort of a funny side to it all, but there was this terrifying stuff. And uh, so I went to the book of Revelation thinking it would be A, very interesting and B, very helpful and found it interesting in a frustrating way. It felt like a book written in code, and here I was with no decoder ring. I had no way of understanding what it was really saying, though some of it didn't sound very much like what Hal Lindsey said it was saying. So then move forward 10 years, and I've become assistant pastor at a church in Toronto. And the big controversy about the end times in those days was whether or not the rapture that you just referred to occurs before the seven-year tribulation, halfway through the seven-year tribulation, or post, post-trib 
after the tribulation. And my senior pastor was with the minority view, the, the mid-trib thing. I had only known pre-trib from the book 10 years ago. And uh, so I was curious. And so I went back to the book of Revelation again and came up with the same frustration. I have no way of interpreting all these symbols. So I give up. And I did uh, for quite a while. Eventually, you know, the fact that there was one book of the Bible I was steadfastly ignoring came to seem uh, a wrong approach. So I tried my best, again, going back to the book of Revelation, to figure out what does the Bible actually say? And in my pursuit of the truth, I came to a deep suspicion about the rapture at all and thought they're actually talking about the resurrection of the, the uh of the human race on the last day of, of history. And then I got doubting the seven-year tribulation because I didn't see that actually there in the Bible at all. And uh, then eventually I, I got to Revelation 20 in my studies, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth from a re, uh, rebuilt Jerusalem with a rebuilt temple on the grounds. And I thought, again, this is not actually what it's saying. It's the popular belief about the millennium, which was a given when I first became a Christian. Nobody argued that. Looked to me very suspect as well. So uh, your, your previous question was, what if none of the future happens the way I think? And my first answer to that would be, there's a couple of publishing companies I would phone and ask for a refund in regard to the <laughs> books that have been most convincing to me. And the two that have been most convincing uh, were these, Ian Murray's book, The Puritan Hope, which talked about the collapse of premillennialism, I'm sorry, the, the collapse of non-premillennialism, which uh, stilted the missionary movement, quite a fascinating story. And also a book on Revelation 20 and Matthew 24, word, uh, verse by verse, called An Eschatology of Victory by a Canadian Presbyterian minister named Kick, K-I-K. Marcellus. Marcel Kick. Marcellus Kick. So um, just to catch some of our listeners up who might not be familiar with some of the terms that we're using, uh, eschatology is one of these big fancy Christian words that we like to use, but it, it really just means the study of last thing, the eschaton being the last thing, ology, study of. So it's the study of last things, and really we're talking about what happens at the end of human history. Are we waiting for an antichrist to come and make the world uh, a horrible place, uh, so horrible in fact that the church gets taken off? Uh, or, uh, or is there a different story? And so you use the term premillennial, and so let's just catch our listeners up again. The, the popular views of eschatology, of the study of last things, would be that uh, there is a premillennial view, which means that uh, the, the reign of Jesus on the earth, that we, we all believe in a returning Jesus. He's going to come and physically return to the earth and rule on this earth. Uh, and so do we believe that that rule is going to happen before his second coming, after his second coming, or is there something we're not understanding? And those are the three premillennial, postmillennial, and, and amillennial. Except so, if I can correct a good brother, you're saying it backwards. The pre refers to the return of Christ. So does the thousand years of glorious living happen after he dies or that's right. he returns previous to it? 
That's right. And that's the conventional view. So the premillennial position is that Jesus comes back before he physically reigns on the earth. He comes back to reign on the earth. Yeah. The postmillennial position, uh, which is the the position that uh, that we at this podcast have come to understand in different ways, and we'll articulate that in a few minutes, is the view that uh, Jesus' uh, reign on the earth in this millennial kingdom that's described in Revelation 20 uh, actually takes place before so his, his return is after that millennial reign on the earth. And then the all-millennial position is to say that Jesus' reign is, is uh, in the intermediary state. It's happening now, but it's not on the earth. And those are kind of the three positions, and there'd be different views of each. There'd be those who are premillennial who would be dispensational, uh, which is by far the most popular uh, view in in the Christian Church, North American Christian Church today. It's the Hal Lindsey. It's the uh, left behind mentality that there's an Antichrist coming and a and a seven year tribulation and a rapture awaiting the church. And there's some some various positions within premillennial. Um, but uh, before we kind of jump into uh, critiquing that or talking about what the world uh, really is. How, Mike, you described a little bit about how you came to understand. So you were taught, you grew up in, a, in an environment that taught the premillennial dispensational view of things, this, this very pessimistic view of what the future is going to look like, except for the optimistic fact that Jesus is going to come back and, and save us all. Um, Chris, how did you, I know when you became a Christian, uh, I think you told me one time that the very first small group you ever went to was reading the Left Behind series. So tell us a little bit about your enter into this discussion. Yep, that was the um, the second book somebody ever gave me after I became a Christian was um, Left Behind and the Tribulation Force, which is the second book of that series. <laughs> and there was like, I think the there sequel. was like 17 books in that series, but I read all 17 of those because the the truth is, the past is awesome. Everybody wants to know the past, but everybody, especially young men, impressionable young men, we want to know the future. We want to know what the end of the oh, world. Oh, we grew looks up like. watching Back to the Future. Exactly. We grew we grew up watching time traveling. Exactly, movies. the apocalypse is a <laughs> yeah. is a very interesting subject. So if somebody can give you a book that explains what's going to happen at the end of the world, right. you're going to devour that book. Right. And so for me, for a long time, those books had formed my entire theology of of the end of the world. And it wasn't until somebody actually challenged me to prove it in Revelation that I realized that I couldn't. Um, so I was told very early on uh, by a, a well-meaning youth pastor that if you read Revelation three times, that's all you should do. Read it three times and you'll be blessed. And so I did that. So I was like, but I didn't understand a lick of it at all, <laughs> except that it was very, it looked very bad. And I was very thankful that I wasn't going to be around for it <laughs> because I believed in a rapture. Problem is that I did a concordance search for the word rapture and I couldn't find it. And so <laughs> then I started to try to figure out, well, where is the theology behind this? And I, I couldn't find it in the Bible. So then I started to study these things on my own as somebody who was maturing in their faith. And I realized that there were other views, which is what I didn't know. And so when I started investigating post-millennial and all-millennialism, I came to be on the side of the all-millennialists where, um, you know, Christ is already reigning. And as uh, you, you've described it sometimes, that is the, the stopgap before post-millennialism. So um, <laughs> it wasn't until I fully understood stood another fancy Christian term, which is called preterism, that the book of Revelation for 19 chapters is a book of prophecy for a certain time period in history. Right. And it wasn't until I grasped that concept that I, I could actually see Revelation as 
as a book that had relevance and meaning in my life. And so it was that is how I got onto the post-mill bandwagon, which I now think is much more important than... Uh, Welcome aboard, Chris. <laughs> Good to have you <laughs> on board. You yeah, on the wagon. So uh, you, you, now you did bring up a couple of terms, and we'll just touch on those briefly. But I, I think for the benefit of everybody who's listening, I think uh, we'll spend our time talking about what is the story. If that's not the story, what is the story? We'll, t- we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, you use the term preterist. So just for, for those of us who are listening and that, that might be a f- first time they're ever hearing that term, what we're talking about is that oftentimes when we approach Scripture and we see some sort of predictive prophecy, a prediction in scripture, a prophecy in scripture about the future, our tendency, uh, I think C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery, is to, uh, is to believe that that's about our future. And we forget sometimes that the Bible was written many, many years ago, uh, some of it 2,000 years ago, and some of it much more than 2,000 years ago. And so there's been a lot of time for some of those predictive writings to take place. And so the, the belief that Matthew 24, which many people would read as, as happening at the end of human history, uh, and uh, Revelation are, are about our future, uh, what we would say as, as those who have embraced a preterist understanding of those particular passages, we would say those passages were written under divine uh, revelation of the Holy Spirit. They're written down about the future, but it was about the future of the writers and the first audience. And those things have happened and they're now in our future. And that's what preterist means, past fulfilled. And so we would look at uh, the book of Revelation and we would simply say that the book of Revelation actually starts, interestingly enough, uh, with a very preterist sort of verse that tells us, uh, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then he goes on in verse three to say, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, uh, which is probably where uh, Chris's well, well-meaning youth pastor was uh, trying to tell him he'd be blessed. But only so, three times. Only three times. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. And so we, we see in what I realized in my journey into understanding these things was that in all I did with the book of Revelation, there's all kinds of symbols I didn't understand. There were uh, giant locusts and there were, you know, uh, whores riding dragons and blood and, and, and uh, green horses and, and all kinds of strange things that I didn't understand. Um, why is it that I was twisting those strange images to mean something that I could see in the world around me now? And why was I trying so hard to, to come up with something that seemed to make sense and ignoring very plain words in Revelation that said, this is about the things that must soon take place. All this stuff is going to happen soon. And of course, to say that, well, what John really meant, he was speaking symbolically. And when he says the things that must soon take place uh, weren't really about the things that must soon take place. A symbolic speech for things that must not be soon taking <laughs> that's place. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Or soon, very generic, like soon, sort of. Yeah, soon, but not really soon. Soon from God's point of view. <laughs> And, uh, and so that's, that's how we've come to kind of understand Revelation, and, and maybe we'll do a, a podcast episode on, on that sort of thing. But what I want to kind of get at and what I think uh, some of our listeners might uh, benefit from hearing is just a couple of guys who take the Bible very seriously, who have a different understanding of what the story is. So uh, Mike, as the guest on the show, we'll let you go first. If the story isn't that the world is going to get worse and worse and an antichrist is going to come and he's, all the Christians are going to get raptured off the church and the antichrist uh, is going to take over and then Christ is going to come back and fix everything. If that's not the story, what is the story? 
I, I know several paths to go down, and I'm going to leave you Douglas Wilson's if you want to put that in. But uh, the version of the story I would tell, or my understanding of how to summarize the whole story of the Bible, is uh, beginning with a God who is absolutely content in his own existence because he exists in three persons. So he is love, but the love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is infinite, so there's a lot of love to go around, and he's there. But he has an intention to make himself known. So he creates this fantastic creation called the universe, and John Calvin calls it the theater of God's glory, or God's glorious theater. He puts a world into it that's inhabitable, which is on so many levels practically impossible. But this is a world that uh, life forms like us can live on. He creates a myriad of creatures, but one of them in his image, equipping that one creature, human beings, to understand God, because his purpose is to be understood, to be known. And then uh, he, uh, God, as the author uh, and director of the play, positioned on the stage that is the world. That's a little Shakespeare, not a little Bible. The world is a stage. He, li- he has them live out the experience of knowing God, which is abruptly interrupted by sin coming into the story in the Garden of Eden, and then the long, horrific illustration of life without God, which is all the years from the time when Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating the forbidden fruit to the time when Christ is born. And that's the most important, significant period of history when Christ is born, because God himself, intent on making himself known that he can be worshipped for his glory and his justice and his mercy and his love, he actually comes out on stage as a member of the human race, lives a perfect life, then he dies the death required so that justice will be served as a growing portion of the human race comes into a personal knowledge of Christ. And so since Christ rose from the dead, ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit down upon his people, originally a very small group, and now over a billion people in the world, the knowledge of the Lord has been, is being spread throughout the world. And the post-millennial hope is that we ain't seen nothing yet, that uh, the knowledge of God will eventually cover the world as the waters cover the sea. That's a prophecy found in a couple places of the Old Testament. And as we take our part to represent Christ well and to communicate the good news well, we become part of the story that the whole world is about. That is, that God to be known by people who made in his image are able to know him. Amen. And, uh, and, and that, to me, seems like a much better story that God seems to be telling. And of course, uh, we don't, uh, we don't go figure out what God's uh, telling us by uh, just seeing what seems best to us, but what we see in Scripture. And so uh, why don't you describe uh, that story to us in, in your terms, uh, Chris? What's the story that God's telling? Sure. Um, it's a story of victory. So when... Christ won the ultimate battle on the cross. The story wasn't finished. He gave us a he gave us a command, and that command was to go and make disciples of all the nations. And I've heard it said. I don't know who first said it, but Christ didn't send us out to fail. He didn't send us out to go and try. Ultimately, we'll be unsuccessful, and I'll come back and and I'll do all the work for you. He gave us a, a task and told us to do it. And so I think 
I think it's telling that the most quoted scripture, Jesus quoted um, Psalm 110, the government, the increase of his government shall be no end. That's his most quoted verse. And that's, he will put things under his feet. And I, I see these things all connecting together in scripture to give us a a battle plan, if you will, of how we're supposed to live our lives. And it's not a, and it's not a, a fearful existence. So for me, when I'm, when I'm thinking of this subject, I, I look at it from a perspective that it one, it harmonizes scripture for me, but two, it gives me relief and, and a task to go about. So God has given us a, a, a battle plan to evangelize the world, convert the world to Christianity so we can give the nations back to Christ when he comes back. So that's where I look at it from there. Yeah, and so you you mentioned Psalm one ten one, and that's um, uh, sit at my right hand until all your enemies are placed underneath your feet in victory. And and yeah, I often say that's that's God's favorite Bible verse because it's the verse that's most often quoted, the Old Testament verse that's most often quoted in the New Testament. Uh, but you mentioned a couple of verses there, and and that's where I would go to tell this story. Um, Mike, you, you mentioned Habakkuk, uh, I believe it's 2.14, that the mm-hmm. knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Uh, another place, you said it's, it's in several places, in Numbers 14, uh, God says it this way. He says, um, I swear by my name that the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is a promise that God has made. And so I guess the, the question is, we're saying, where is history going? What is the story that's unfolding in history now? The question we have to ask is, is that promise of God going to be fulfilled? Is, is that going to happen? And uh, you, you talked about, Chris, how this harmonizes scriptures for you. And, and for me, uh, when, when my eyes were open to this view, that there is a view of the history of the world that isn't the popular view that I was told, but there is actually a view that... Christ, through his Holy Spirit-empowered church, actually wins the world back to himself, the world that was surrendered by Adam and Eve and won back. Uh, it, it, it began to bring scripture together to, for me in a way that I had never seen before. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, when you think about what happened in the Garden of Eden, so Adam and Eve sin, uh, they're tempted by, by Satan, they, they sin, and Adam was God's... Uh, first created son, his, his, first, uh, his firstborn son of the earth. And, and God gave the world to Adam, right? Go and have dominion. He says, you, you'll rule over all the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. Go and have dominion. And what did he say? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's the mandate. Fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Sin enters the world and the mandate doesn't, ch- the mandate changes, but it isn't because the, the curse comes in, sin comes into the world, and it's still be fruitful and multiply, but Eve is going to have pain and childbearing. Still subdue the earth, still cultivate the ground and fill the earth, but now it's by the sweat of your brow that you'll cultivate the earth. And so the mandate still is there, go and, and fill the world. And then it's interesting because then the story switches in Genesis 12, and God calls Abraham, and he says, you know, through you I'm going to bless every nation on earth. And the story of Israel isn't just the story of God choosing a people for himself, for his, his self's sake, but it was always for the sake of the whole world. He says to, to Abraham that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we see this theme throughout scripture. In, in Psalm 2, uh, it says that uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It says, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And so when Christ enters the scene in the New Testament and he's born into the world, Mike, you called it the kind of the climax of, of the history, the climax of the story. 
Jesus is born into the world. And I find it very, very interesting that before he embarks on his earthly ministry, uh, he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And the last temptation of Satan uh, to Jesus was, bow down before me and I'll give you the nations. I'll give you every nation on earth. I'll give you the world. And that's an interesting thing that sometimes as Christians we gloss over. You notice that Jesus responds to Satan not by saying, those aren't yours to give, right? He responds by saying, you know, thou shall not bow before anyone else. He quotes scripture to him and, and says, that's not how I came to get the nations. He, Satan, that's a real temptation for Jesus because that's what Jesus came for. He came to fulfill Psalm 2, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. And so Jesus came to fulfill that original blessing that God says, through you, Abraham, and through Israel, I'll bless every nation on earth. I, and so then, ask of me, I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. It says in Malachi, when God makes a promise and he says um, that uh, incense everywhere will be burned uh, in my name, to my glory. And so that's the story. And so when Jesus comes, he, he refuses Satan's temptation and he said, essentially saying, that's not how I came to get the nations, but I did come for the nations. Because after he dies and he ri- raises from the dead, he gives us the great commission, go Go and make disciples of all nations. Go get me my inheritance. And so what's the story? I think the story is the, is the, the long history of God's people doing just that. God's people getting Christ his inheritance, getting God the nations. So if, if we pull that together and, and just say really, really practically for our listeners, that doesn't mean from our view, if I'm correct here, that doesn't mean that the world's going to get worse and worse, does it? No, it actually means the opposite. That the world is actually becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. And that reverses everything in the mind of Christians. Instead of thinking about all the ways that society is failing, we must think about all the ways that society must be, as Psalm 110.1 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. And so we don't have a, a view of culture like, that these things can't be changed. And I think sometimes when we look at the world around us, it's easy for us to say, how can you say things are getting better and better? Look at ISIS, right? Look at abortion. Look at, and if, if we believe that the story is everything's going to get worse and worse until Christ comes back and fixes it, then there, we don't actually believe that any of these things can be changed. A, a Christian who believes that Jesus is coming back at any moment and that the world is only going to get worse and worse, do they really believe that abortion is something that can be defeated? that they can actually see the end to abortion. And, uh, and I think that if, if we get the story straight and we recognize where God is taking history, it changes everything. It's the Doug Wilson says that different way. He says, the problem with people in this viewpoint is that they look at history in too small of segments. That's right. If you look at the, the church age, if you will, in increments of five or four, four or 500 years, you do see this right. portrayed out on history. But Christians, we have a tendency to look at our world and get our theology from what's happening outside of the Bible around us, not as, not so much of what the Bible says. That's right. And I, I'm reminded John three sixteen and seventeen. Everybody knows John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that so whoever would believe Him would not perish but have eternal life. But nobody ever couples that up with the very next verse, which says, "For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him." Right, And it's like those two verses together, in a very quick way, portray eschatology, that the world may be saved through Christ. And so that gives us a mandate that we can go out and we can expect to see change in people's hearts. We can expect to see things like abortion, things like false religions fall 
under the feet of Christ, but maybe not in our lifetime. Maybe right. our kids' lifetime, generations from now, generations from now, us passing down and living a faithful example of the of the Word of God as we take the nations back, but slowly. Right, and and I think that 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 slow that slow growth is something that we see throughout Scripture. Right, again, we talk about how this view kind of harmonizes Scripture. Uh, I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter 7 where God talks about uh, he hadn't given Israel the the entire land yet. They're looking around and they're seeing there's still these tribes that are in our land, God, and you promised us this land. And he says, um, I'm, I'm driving out those nations, but I'm driving them out slowly. And he gives them the reason. He says, if they get driven out too quickly, then the, new, the animals will pop up and they'll be too numerous for you. But he, he gives them this, this uh, principle of slowly taking the land. And then we see that in the, in the Messianic promises throughout the Old Testament. So we see, and you quoted it earlier, Chris, uh, from Isaiah chapter 9, one of our favorite uh, Christmas verses, right? It talks about how a, a, the, a son is given and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And, and we sometimes forget the next verse. And uh, the government will be on his shoulders and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So this Messiah, when he comes, his reign will, will start small and it will grow. And this is a, exactly what Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 13 when he's talking about his kingdom. I brought this kingdom and, and we know that the kingdom is here because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, if, uh, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom has come upon you. And we know that Jesus cast out demons by the power of God and not the power of Beelzebul. So the kingdom was there. And Jesus taught in Matthew 13 that it's, it's, it's starting small, like a mustard seed, and it's going to grow to bigger than every other plant. And, and it starts out like a little leaven, and it's going to spread throughout the entire thing. And so wherever you go in Scripture, you see this principle of, of something starting small and growing into all of its fullness. So it seems to me like this is the story that the Bible is telling. So Mike, how would you say this changes how we live? How, how it uh, changes how we live uh, to look at the, the different millennial views um, whole is, uh, well, let me start by quoting someone that we three admire, a published author who's post-millennial named Douglas Wilson. And I think, Nate, you were the one who told me that he says post-millennials are the only ones having fun. <laughs> I turn that word to joy uh, and think about my days when I was pre-tribulation, uh, pre-millennialist. And, uh, you know, the Bible has all kinds of details of good news and all kinds of details of bad news. But the unfun thing, the joyless thing that premillennialists do is take every bit of tangible good news, whether it's symbolically portrayed like the lion laying down with the lamb or it's it's depicted more realistically and pack it up and save it for the millennium, which means it has no application to present time. There's an obligation inherent in premillennialism that says, you know, however bad it is, it's getting worse. So we have an obligation to dread the future with no hope of anything changing until Jesus comes back in person and forcibly makes the change. But the postmillennialist takes the good news that's detailed throughout scriptures, including the uh, symbolic things like the lion laying down with the lamb, and understands it's all part of the kingdom of God growing from a mustard seed to a mighty tree. 
So then there's the fun that Douglas Wilson's talking about, the, the joy that comes from realizing, despite all appearances of the contrary, everything's under control. And despite all appearances of the contrary, the kingdom of God is getting more and more deep-rooted and more and more fruitful. We just need to give it 500 or 1,000 or 5,000 years to really realize it. Amen. And for any of our listeners who uh, have listened to us and listened to uh, some of the guys that we talk about, uh, the Puritans that we admire and whose theology we have, I would just uh, challenge you, if this is new to you, if, if this is getting your guard up, if it's getting the, the, the hardness around your heart a little bit uh, uh, solidified, I would just challenge you and say, go back. You, you're loving the soteriology of, of Calvin, and you're loving the, uh, the uh, complementarian uh, uh, Puritan theology. Go back to their missiology. Go back to their eschatology. We, we're not getting this uh, from Doug Wilson. We're getting it from where Doug Wilson is getting it from, and, and the same guys who taught us how to be Calvinists and complementarians taught us how to be post-millennialists. And I would just recommend the book that Mike uh, talked about earlier, the, post, uh, the, the Puritan Hope by Ian Murray, that kind of talks about uh, the, the great apple application that post-millennialism, or at the very least an eschatology of victory, has uh, to Christian missionaries. And I should just say that Ian Murray, who was an associate pastor working for Martin Lloyd-Jones for many years and is the author of the book, The Puritan Hope, refers to his positive view of the future as amillennialism, but he means (laughs) post-millennialism. The word's changed. <laughs> and we will link all those books on our Facebook page. Yep. And feel free to like, share, and comment. And we want to hear from you guys, especially on this topic. Tell us what you think, and we will have a, a good dialogue on there continuing. But we do need to wrap it up. So, Mike, I do want to ask you one final question. and Just give me a quick answer for this one. How can Christians begin to memorize Scripture? I'm so glad to be asked that question because memorizing Scripture changed my life. The first serious opportunity I had to grow as a brand new Christian, was with a on-campus, university-based discipleship organization called The Navigators. And they have a device, they sold it in those days, you mailed away for it, uh, and they sent you it in installments. Now it's online and orderable online. It's called the Topical Memory System. And I've handed it out or uh, um, recommended it to dozens and dozens of people over the years. And I always give these two recommendations. For starters, follow the instruction book. Don't cheat. You memorize um, 60 verses over 30 weeks. And the uh, temptation to succumb to, which will ruin everything, is start off excited. So So people typically memorize 12 or 20 verses the first week. But the idea is over 30 weeks, which is a long time, you develop the habit of memorizing slowly and surely. And along with those instructions, you know, the, the timeline, all kinds of instructions about how to review. I did the topical memory system, the first 60 verses, in 1972 and 73. And those verses I know better than some verses I memorized a decade later because I've reviewed <laughs> them for longer. Right. And the second, so I say follow the rules in the instruction book that comes with the kit called the Topical Memory System on the Navigator website. And secondly, get a buddy every week to sit down with you to give you a chance to prove to him that you've successfully memorized. Because staring at the card on your own while you're driving, for example, uh, it's easy to convince yourself, yeah, I got this one down, Pat. And then you have to recite it to somebody and you find out whether or not that's true. Wonderful. And uh, if anybody's listening who wants to take that challenge, I will gladly accept and we can go through that together and we'll blog about it on Twitter. 
thank you very much for being <laughs> here, Mike. My pleasure. And thank you very much for being here as well, co-host Nate. Thanks, man. No problems. Let's have a great day and go out there and change the world, guys. Bye.